Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. Well, I appreciate our elders uh, reading the book of 1 Timothy there, some of that, because so much of Timothy is directed at the church on how we should be conducting ourselves, our worship, and et cetera. And so I, I, that's a great reminder. Also uh, t today, just a lot of what we're going to talk about, as usual, is on the gospel and the fact that sometimes we can think the gospel is just... Somebody flip on my light back there for, for us so we can get in our Bibles. Um, so many people think that... Uh, the gospel is just for the, the lost. And once you get the, the gospel, then you don't need the gospel anymore. But as we're going to see today, that the gospel is something that we need as believers as well. And one great reminder of that that I get every day is a, a devotion book that I like to read called New Morning Mercies. And yesterday, Seth Cloud told me that they had at Hobby Lobby, they had these imitation leather-bound editions. And this is really nice. And, and so I picked up a couple of these yesterday. And I just wanted to give one away today because it is an awesome reminder of uh, our, our dependence on Christ every single day. And so I, I was thinking, how can I randomly pick somebody to do this? But I'm just going to pick a birthday. And if your birthday is on June 30th, raise your hand. June 30th. All right, right there, Charlie Umfreak. All right. Do you have this already? All right. Let me give this one to you. Yeah, you have to walk up here. Uh, I could jump down there, right? Thanks. I think you'll enjoy that, Charlie. It's, it's a great reminder each and every day. So we're back in the book of 1 Timothy, and so we're going to start with verse 3. I encourage you to follow along in the app, because all the scriptures are there in the app, and you don't have to leave through your Bible a bunch, although that's really good to leave through your Bible. But as I move to different passages that are supporting, they're there for you that you can just see. And also, there's notes that you can follow along with. So let me pray, and we'll jump in to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Father God, this is your word, and God, you told us that your spirit would bring your words to life, that would make us not only aware that they're from you, but God, you'll convict our hearts where we do fall short of your holiness, and we'll run to Jesus in every aspect of our life, God. Help us to not compartmentalize our lives certain part being off limits to you, God. Help us to remember the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 says, As I urged you, Paul's writing this to Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so just kind of a recap, if you missed last week, 1 Timothy, written to young pastor Timothy, Paul's protege, who he has left at Ephesus to pastor a church, and not just any church, a very difficult but really influential church there in Ephesus. And this church in Ephesus, there were false teachers from within attacking truth. And so Timothy is being challenged by Paul to teach only the true doctrine that comes from Jesus that came through Paul and to charge those people who were teaching other things, as we'll see in a minute, to teach only the doctrine that was given through Christ. And so Paul in this book is going to give Timothy a great deal of not only theological truth, but he's going to give him a lot of practical truth, some tools to get this church back in order, operating properly, which is what is properly glorifying God and making disciples. And so he says, verse 3, remain at Ephesus, so no one was going to teach any different doctrine. But then he says, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies with promote spec speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so not only were they teaching false doctrine, but they were doing other things. They were possibly taking these extra biblical Jewish writings or they were looking back into the Old Testament and Genesis, taking the genealogies and expounding upon them. Whatever exactly was going on here, they had departed from the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were babbling and talking and spending a lot of time and speculating on things that did not matter. And we say a lot here, keep the main thing the main thing. And these teachers were making up their own messages, coming up with this stuff that was extra biblical, were expounding on things that did not matter, and they were hijacking the church. And so if you skip down to verse 6, we'll come back to verse 5. He says, certain persons, by swerving from these, from the truth, have wandered into vain discussions. And so they're talking about meaningless stuff. They're spending their time on pure speculation, things that don't matter. And we can be guilty of that too, right? We, can, we talked a great deal about this last week. Go back and listen if you missed it. We can spend our time talking about good things that aren't the main thing. We can begin to focus in on things that are opinion-driven, things that are extra-biblical, pushing people to something other than Jesus Christ and the gospel. And while that can be a Band-Aid in the short term on some things, in the long term, it doesn't make a difference. It saves no one's soul for eternity. And so Paul says in verse 5, here's the aim of our charge. Here's the purpose of truth is love. He says that's the goal, the aim of our charge. The purpose of my writing to you, Timothy, is to be sure this congregation operates in love. The whole way of life Paul desired for the people of Ephesus is summed up in that one word, in this one verse, love. You're to love one another, what Jesus called the law of Christ, and what Paul referred to as the law of Christ, to love God with all of our being, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We are to love one another. In verse 5, he says, where does this real love come from? It comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, a real faith, a true faith, not something that you just come up with on your own. And so you can't separate out love and truth. Love and truth go together because how can you really love someone if you don't give them the truth? And so false teachers, even in our day, 
they emphasize love and unity at the expense of truth. And so it's whatever feels right, whatever seems like it's culturally acceptable, whatever the flavor of the day of the age is, that's truth. And so this is what everyone should believe. And obviously that we see that that's not where truth comes from. But they, these false teachers, even in our day, teach that if you don't agree with them and their feelings, then you've got the problem. You're not thinking in love and you're not thinking in their form of truth. So it's interesting that as these false teachers, even today, um, present truth, their truth is only whatever agrees with them. And they're tolerant of everyone and everything except what conforms to their definition of truth. And they don't want sin confronted. But we know as having God's word that we have to confront sin. We have to deal with sin because we can't really love somebody if we don't know what is God's standard of holiness. We're going to talk about that. And so they accuse other people of being judgmental and unloving. But the the truth of scriptures always confronts sin because God is holy and he calls us, his people, to live a life of holiness. And so in verse 6, these certain persons, these false teachers, by swerving from these things had wondered in vain discussions. And then verse 7, they desired to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so we're not exactly sure what these false teachers were teaching in regard to the law, but we do know it was probably, these were probably Jewish people who were with a Pharisaical bent. What I mean by that, the Pharisees who wanted to add and stack on top of all the laws, these extra laws, so you don't break the law. But in turn, they were living lives that did not support the things that they were saying. They were hypocrites. Jesus said, you're like a tomb that looks great on the outside, but the inside is dead men's bones. So they were some way twisting or teaching law, but they were twisting it for their own benefit, and they weren't teaching what Paul calls sound doctrine. And we know Paul in his letters talked a great deal about law. And here's what he continues to say, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Let's pause there. The word law in Scripture can be used in quite a few different ways. I feel like Paul is saying here, he's referring to the Mosaic law, which is found in the first five books of the Old Testament we call the Torah. He's referring to the Mosaic law. And so he says, the law is good, if we use it lawfully. So what's he talking about there? Well, the law is good. The law was a gift to Israel. The law was a gift. You remember when the law was given, the people of Israel were wandering in the desert. They were needing uh, uh, not only moral truth to live by, but they were needing practical ways in order to organize their society for their health, for their good, and to honor God. And so God brought the law in, and it was a success for the community when they followed the law. When they ran from the law, bad things always occurred. And so Paul says, law is good if one uses it lawfully. And we understand through the book of Romans that the purpose of the law was to show us God's righteousness and his holiness because it reflects the character of God. It shows us God's perfect standard. And when we look at law, when we see the law of God, the moral law of God, we see and are convicted by our sins. How would we know we need a Savior unless there's a law to convict us and show us of our sin? So the purpose of the law, Paul talks about, is to use as a schoolmaster. It shows us where our sin is, and it shows us where we fall short of God's glory. And in turn, 
we are broken, we're humbled, and we run to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. But in the law during the time of Israel, during the time of today, no law earns you right standing with God. Keeping law then and now doesn't earn you favor with God. It was there, it was put in place as a reminder. Every year, you remember the Jewish people went and they sacrificed and they sacrificed and they atoned for sins, but it was only a short-term covering because God's perfect perfection, His holiness, required this. But when Jesus came, the once and for all sacrifice, the substitute for our sins, and so forever covered by Jesus. And so Jesus kept the law perfectly because you and I know we can't keep the law perfectly. We're unable to do that. But what the gospel teaches is this word called imputation. God imputed his righteousness to us through Jesus Christ. And that's maybe a new word for some of you. Let me explain that because that's really the essence of the gospel is that you don't measure up, that I don't measure up. There's no good works. And I've talked about this in the last few weeks, that how are people so deceived that they hear the gospel again and again, and you say, how do you know that you're going to heaven? How do you know that you know Jesus? Well, I just hope that I, you know, I'm doing enough good. I'm hoping that you know, I'm keeping enough commandments. And you hear that from people who sit in Bible-believing churches and teach Bible every single week because Satan has blinded the minds of those and the eyes of those so they don't see the glorious gospel. And so... Because we didn't measure up when we put our faith in Jesus through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, then Christ's righteousness is applied to our account. He gives us his righteousness. So Jesus kept the law perfectly. We couldn't. And so Jesus, when we put our faith in him and his perfect righteousness, we receive his righteousness and he receives, takes on our sin He pays the debt for our sin. The great exchange. Our righteousness. Or his righteousness for our sin. Amazing. And how could anyone not want the gospel? But Paul said, going back to the law, Galatians 3.24, that the law was our guardian until Christ came. It was our guardian until Christ came. So God's amazing plan. Jesus came, the law had done its purpose, it points out our sin. And it continues to do that purpose for those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It points out sin. But rule keeping, as I said, doesn't earn favor. We're left with the gospel. The main purpose of the law, reveal God's holiness and expose your sin. And verse 9, go back to verse 9 again. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. So I take that to mean that the one who is justified, the just, the one who's justified in Jesus, the law is not laid down for them. The law is not for them. The law is, has served his purpose for those who are now in Christ. It's pointed out and shown their sin. And so he says, though, but the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so what does he mean by that? How can we use the law lawfully? Well, there's a couple different opinions on the Christian's relationship to the law. And let me just specify for a second when I refer to law here, okay? I'm talking about Old Testament, particularly the Mosaic law, but also really the entire Old Testament. What is the Christian's relationship to that? 
since I can't be justified by the law, and I've come to Christ and received his righteousness, what is my purpose? Well, let me just say right off the bat that the purpose of, the, of us being justified and the law doesn't uh, apply in that way anymore to us is definitely not to promote lawlessness. Paul talked about that in Romans 6. He said, uh, what do we say? Do we keep sinning so that grace can keep flowing, can abound? And he, and he does this. It's almost like a reaction to what he's saying there. He's saying, uh, no way. He said, God forbid, there's no way possible that we as Christians can continue in sin so that grace can continue. And so we know that following Christ and living in the Spirit, living the law of love, is not a rejection of God's holiness. It's not a rejection of his character. It's not a rejection, and stay with me because you might think, well, I thought that's not what you said. It's not a rejection of his law because it does not bring about lawlessness. And it's very important to, for us to understand the believer's relationship to the law. And now I want to focus in here on specifically the Mosaic law. 613 commands are found in the Mosaic law. 613 commands. You start reading the law, start in Genesis 1, read through Deuteronomy, you'll find 613 laws chronicled in those books. And so what the Christian needs to understand, and this is going to be on the screen because it's a great quote. I can't remember where I found it or I would cite the source. It says, unlike Israel, Christ followers, the new covenant people that Jesus is gathering as his church, we are no longer defined by political, ethnic, or geographic unity, but rather we are a people from all nations, all ethnicities, scattered among all political states, not identified with any one of them, but unified and identified in our connection with Jesus. And so the laws which dealt with Israel as a state, Israel as a, as a people group, Israel as they were being governed by this law, those don't apply to the people of God today, those who are in Christ today. And so the, the question that's often debated is then, what is the purpose of the law? How does the law apply to us? And many evangelical Christians, and stick with me here, because this, this is important. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. Many evangelical Christians want to take the Mosaic law, they want to take the, the, the laws that are given, the 613 commands, and they want to begin to pull that apart and say, okay, you have the civil law. You have the, that's to govern the people. You have the ceremonial laws, which cover the sacrifices. And then you have the moral law. And these are the character of God, which comes out in the commands of Scripture in the Old Testament and in the Torah. And, and so many people want to pull it apart and then show that we should continue to keep the moral law of God. Now, let me say this from the front end. The moral law applies to us today, but not in the way that it, as far as deriving itself from that source, the Torah, because I don't think that you can break it apart successfully. I think it's so interweaved and interconnected together that while you can definitely see moral law, it, it, sometimes these things just blend together and Christians find themselves running and using verses to support or argue against some sin they don't like from the law when oftentimes they find themselves in a quandary because the very next verse could say something that has no relevance to us today. Let me give you an example. I had a lady whose son went to school here at Grace Christian Academy. She came up to me one day and she said, doesn't the Bible say that you can't have tattoos? I was like, yeah, it does say that. I said, go find it. Use your reference, find it. And she's like, okay, right here. And she turns to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, and says, you shall not make any cuts on your body 
for the dead or tattoo yourself, I am the Lord. And she's like, case closed, right? Because my son's saying to me about tattoos. Right there it is, black and white. You can't have tattoos. Well, I said, well, look at the verse in front of that one, verse 27, right leading up to verse 28. What does it say? And she read it and she said, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. All right, so I'm looking around here and I'm seeing if anyone here has cut their hair on the sides of their head. And raise your hand if I don't see you well right there, if you've never cut that. Of course we have, right? And you see, we, 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 we look at the law and we pick and choose and we say, well, that's the moral law, that's ceremonial, that's civil. And I'm here to say that I believe that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament commands, do not apply to the Christian today as a covenant. God has given us his covenant. He's given us the new covenant. And there we have the covenant in the Old Testament, which is as a package has passed away, is not, does not apply to us as a package. And that's the key word, as a package. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Romans 7.6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so I, I believe that Scripture teaches that as a package that that covenant is not applicable for us today. Now, let me give you an illustration that's going to help you before you think I've gone off the deep end here, okay? So if you are in America, if you're in the United States, you're required to follow the laws of this country. You're bind, you're, the laws here are binding to you, and if you disobey them, you have punishment, you have consequences. Well, if you get in your car today and drive west and then southwest and go to Mexico, and you enter into that country, the laws of the United States don't apply to you. You've got traffic laws that are different. You have laws on the books that don't apply, that we enforce, that they don't enforce. It's just different. But... Here in the middle, there's a bunch of overlap, right? In Mexico, you can't go kill somebody. Murder is still punishable. It's, it's still a crime, just like it is in the United States. And so there's overlap throughout the Bible because the moral law of God transcends all of Scripture. And so as New Covenant believers, our new law in the New Testament is the law of Christ, the law of love, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then Scripture teaches us that God has written His commands upon our heart. Now, that's one that may be confusing, because God has written His commands upon our hearts. Does that mean once you become a believer, then there's no need for anything else other than, like, you, you know all these commands that God gives to you? Everything that you should do is written right there, and you just have to recall it and bring it up? And the Holy Spirit lives in us. We know that's true. Does he just instantly unload with us all the laws, the moral laws that we need in order to follow him and honor his holiness? Well, no. But we do know that Christ in us changes everything. Colossians chapter 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does it mean that the laws of God are written on our heart? Well, it means that Scripture, get this, Scripture, God's Word, God's commands, and let's just say the New Testament commands, the laws that are reiterated again in the New Testament, those things are not offensive to you. They're not offensive. You love, you delight in God's laws. They're great. They're, they're amazing. Why? Because they point to 
the character of God, His holiness, who He is. And so if you're over here and you say, you know what, I know that God's holiness says I shouldn't commit adultery, but I, you know, I really want to commit adultery, and I feel like it's convenient for me to flip, commit adultery, and you know, God really, that, that wasn't for me, that's for somebody else, or I don't think it applies in this situation, and so I'm going to commit adultery. But God says, I'm holy. Be holy as I am holy. And he tells us, adultery is a sin. It does not reflect who God is. It doesn't reflect his character. And so as somebody who has Christ in them, the Holy Spirit in them, who's been regenerated, moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, how in the world can you look at God's law, his, his loving law that's given to us, to reflect him and say, that's not for me, or I don't want any part of that. A true believer delights in God's law. And so as you read scripture and you come across God's character and his holiness and who he is, and we'll look at specifics in this passage in a minute, then you say, wow, like Charles said, part of me does desire, that fleshly part does desire those things, but I'm different. I'm changed. The Holy Spirit is in me. He allows me to delight in the Word, delight in the holiness of God. And so I look at God's standard and I say, no way. How can I continue in sin? There's no way that somebody who's died to sin can continue in it any longer. And so if I find myself committing sin, I quick to confess and repent of that sin and run to Jesus as my only hope for righteousness and holiness. I don't run to law. I run to holiness. The law points out my sin, but I run to Jesus because he's my righteousness. The law is not my righteousness. So the law is, is wonderful if used correctly. And, and we're not offended by God's list of things that we shouldn't do. And that spirit of rebellion against his authority for the believer is gone. There's no, it's not there anymore. It's replaced by a spirit of obedience. Gospel-driven, Holy Spirit motivation to be holy in every way possible. And so think of it like this. And my illustration of Mexico and the United States probably helped, but think of it like this in this Venn diagram here. Go back one more, back one to the Venn, the circles. There you go. So think of it like this again. So in the Old Testament, you had a, a covenant, a system of laws, a package, and it had a lot of character of God in it, but it, had a, it has a lot of other things as well. But you look on the right side, you're going to see, just like in this passage and other passages, that the Scripture names out sins. The New Testament names it out. It tells you what the sin is. But there's a great deal of overlap because God's holiness doesn't change. Now I'll go to the next screen, the next one. So, you, so maybe picture it like this. The, 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 the God's transcendent law is of all, for all eternity, from eternity past to eternity future. It never goes away. But you see that we, God gives his covenant people certain aspects of that, certain things that he need, they need of that that may not apply to us today, but it doesn't change the fact that God's holiness, and there's a standard that points to him that has always exists and always will exist. And so I think it's important for us to, to remember that because we don't run and say, okay, why, why is that a sin? We run and we pull up an Old Testament passage. I think one, just practically, it's not a wise stewardship of Scripture because then you're left explaining a lot of other things that make no sense. So even if I'm off, I think it's still better to go to the New Testament and point out the holiness of God and the character of God that's crystal clear and found on every page of Scripture. 
And, and we have verses like Galatians 5.19 that give us lists and say, now the works of the flesh are evident. The one that I started putting up there, and it goes sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and on and on and on and on. We have so many verses that show God's holiness and who he is in the New Testament. And it tells us his character, and it points us to Jesus. But they're not required of us because they're part of the Old Covenant the, the, the Torah, they're, they're relevant to us because they're given through Jesus to the New Covenant believers in the New Testament to show us how to love him properly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so this is why Christians aren't, maybe you wondered, why, why are Christians not commanded to keep the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why do we not keep that if the Old Testament Torah law is applicable to us today as a package? Because I would say in here that every one of you, at some point or another, over the last few months, has mowed your grass on Saturday. You've done something of work on Saturday. You haven't, have, you, have you built a fire on Saturday? That's against the command to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, is Sabbath principle something that was created at creation? wasn't commanded at creation. was created. God rested. It's an incredible principle for us to live by and we need Sabbath, God would not have rested because he needed rest. He rested as an example to us. And so we should be keeping Sabbath. We should be taking rest from our work. And most of us, that's really not an issue because most of us take too much rest probably. But, but so think of it, the transcendent um, moral law of God through all of Scripture. And then some people might ask, well, what is this Freedom in Christ. We were saying about this. What, is, what does freedom in Christ mean then? If, if we're still following laws, what is freedom of Christ? Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What does he mean there? He means that Christians, again, I, I, I'm going to give you a list here, three things. Christians are not lawless. We are to be obedient to God's moral standard, his character, his holiness. But not everything in Scripture is mentioned as whether we do this or don't do this. There's a lot of things that aren't specifically named. And just because the Bible is silent on an activity doesn't necessarily indicate approval of that activity. And so, number three, Christian freedom is given to us, but it's uncomfortable and it's hard sometimes because it forces us to examine our true motives. And Paul talked a lot about this. When we went through Corinthians, we talked about eating food sacrificed to idols. All right. For a lot of the Jewish followers of Christ, that was an open and shut case. Right. You just don't do it. It's, it's terrible. It's horrible. How could you even think about it? And Paul said, look, in freedom. And then he gives some guidelines and he says, look, you can do this in a way that's free, freeing. But if you offend your brother, if your brother looks at you and he stumbles and he, he turns away, then you failed because your freedom is used to flaunt itself to this other weaker believer. And you've harmed this person. And so we examine our motives. Let's go back to the, the, to the uh, tattoo illustration, all right? Get real personal, all right? So a tattoo for one person in here could be wrong because it violates your conscience. It, it, it's, it, it, you see, it's no way this could honor Jesus Christ in your workplace and in your family life. And so you say, that, that I just can't do that. I mean, that's, this violates my conscience. Does, are you doing it because the law said not to do it? No, you're doing it because you're evaluating your freedom in Christ and seeing What's the benefit of this for me? And we have to constantly do those things. We have to, to, to examine ourselves and see, what's my purpose in this? And that applies for so much more areas than just, uh, you know, a tattoo. And so 
we look and we say, what's, what's my purpose? Am I glorifying God? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather to serve the Spirit and serve one another. And then verse 9, we get to the list of things that Paul says. These are the things that the law points out to show your sin. And these are absent from God. I mean, these are not God. These are, these, God's holiness is so opposite of these things. And look what he says. He says, verse 9, Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So Paul lays this out. He says, here, these are the things that are indicative of God's character, the moral law. And for a, a, a Christian, we look at this and we understand the law has served its purpose. It's pointed out our sin. Now we're in Christ. We're free in Christ. But we know that these things are anti-Christ. These things are against Christ. Why would we ever want to run and participate in any of these things? And so the law made us run to Jesus, but yet we still, sometimes we can be hard-headed. We can be, uh, you know, one track. We can get our mindset in a way that we think, you know what, I'm justifying the things that I'm going to do. And we forget that, you know what, that, what, what God names as a sin, we think is okay. And God says, no, it's not. It's not okay. And I told you as I gave away the New Morning Mercies devotion, I love the gospel reminder in that every day. And this is one day I read a few weeks ago that I just thought was awesome. He says, Paul Tripp writes, he says, I will make this confession. Although it hurts me to do so, I am a very skilled self-swindler. I am very good at playing monkey games with my morality. All too often I argue for righteousness that's simply not there. It's too easy for me to convince myself that the wrong that I have done is not so wrong after all. We're moral swindlers. We are. We can justify ourselves so easy. We can, you know, say, oh, you know, I'm just allowing the Holy Spirit to lead me. And we can just ignore the, the outright commands and the moral law of God and just run and do our things. And I think it's, it's a blessing that these types of lists are provided, although they're not all inclusive, like I said, of every sin that we could possibly commit that's a violation of God. But we need those reminders. And here's the scary thing. And this is where we have to, instead of finding our favorite, you know, sin on that list that somebody else is committing and saying, yeah, I love it. It's naming that. Yeah, way to go. First and foremost, the gospel should humble us. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Wow, I see myself so much in that. I see who, who I'm naturally inclined to be. And if, if maybe I'm not um, like committing that sin like overtly with my hands and my body, I fall back to the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said, that if I think about these things and scheme about them and desire them, I've already violated the law. I'm already in violation because it's not about necessarily the actions always that you do. It can be about your heart and what's in your heart and what would you do if you were free to get away with whatever you could. And so we don't have some high moral ground that we can look and say, yes, others, others, others. We start with ourselves. The holiness and the mirror of Scripture and God's character always points back to us. And you remember earlier when I said, keep the main thing, the main thing. The first time I ever heard that expression 
was from a former pastor friend of mine. He's still a friend, but he's a former pastor. Why is he a former pastor? Because he said, keep the main thing, the main thing. I heard him say that so many times. And he had to leave ministry because he had multiple, multiple affairs on his wife, blew his family up, divorced, out of ministry for years now. You can say, keep the main thing, the main thing, and all along swindle yourself by doing whatever you want to do. And so God's holy character, his moral law, is so helpful for us because we understand we're prone to deceive and we're prone to wonder. And so he says, the sexually immoral, and Paul said in another place, won't inherit the kingdom of God. This is not indicative of those who know Jesus and are part of the kingdom, that somebody who's sexually immoral, somebody who practices that, it's not the case. And then he says in verse 9, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's the fourth commandment, that honor our fathers and mothers. Murderers, those who kill other people. That should be obvious, right? But here's the thing, as society, and this is kind of some Romans 1 and 2 stuff here, if you go back and read that today, Romans 1 and 2 talk about how that God has written his moral laws on everyone's heart at some level, that everyone knows that murder is wrong in their heart. I mean, all societies say murder others is wrong, but yet Romans 1 talks about how that we can exchange the truth of God for a lie and want to worship and serve us, ourselves, the creation, rather than the creator who was made in the image of God. So, and so, so we can swindle ourselves even on this. And one area I think that happens prevalently in our society where people who, who are staunch against murder, but then turn around and, and support abortion in some way, shape, or form. How in the world could you possibly justify that? I would dare say that God has written that upon our hearts, for sure, that people know that, that, that through the moral consciousness of God that abortion is a violation of, of, of his holiness. And even if they reject God, they know that that's not, that's not proper and right, a living human being. Yet we justify our sins. And we, we say that it's okay to kill an innocent, unborn child. And we even celebrate that in our society. How could that be the case? And then verse 10, he says the sexually immoral. We talked about that. Men who practice homosexuality. There's another one that's celebrated in our society. Unbelievable that people can look into the Word of God and not walk away knowing that homosexuality is a sin. It's self-deception. And then he says enslavers. And you know how I talked about my friend who was a pastor who said, keep the main thing the main thing, yet all along he had this affair, these affairs? Well, I think this is one where we see that there were so many blind spots in history in this area. That enslavers, there's nothing to do with God's holiness. It's the furthest thing from God's holiness. Yet men and women in history who said they believed in the scriptures, who said they were devoted to God, some way swindled themselves to think that it was okay to be at some level involved in the transatlantic slave trade. How do we do that? How do we look at God's law and say, doesn't apply to me? It's not applicable to me. Look, this is not me here. I'm not making up this list just because this is the flavor of the day, right? This is what God says. And we can swindle ourselves if we're not careful. And we know that um, racial tensions are so prevalent right now and there's so much animosity and so much fighting. We as Christians should love everyone regardless of their race, color, creed, whatever, because why? The church, there's no, neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, but all are one in Christ. There's no separating people out. And so how that people in our past 
could read the same scriptures that we do and walk away with racist attitudes and think they're better and somebody's only worth three-fifths of a person? How can that be? How is that possible? Because all of us are guilty of being self-swindlers. We can look in scripture and say, that's for them, not for me. Well, mine's not so bad. And the law of God, the moral law of God, points out our sin. And speaking just, you know, of all, everything that's going on in society right now, what do you do? You go to trusted voices that you know are reliable, that trust God's word, and point you to Christ. And one of those people who I've heard in person, some of you did also, is a guy named Tony Evans. You guys know Tony Evans. He went to Dallas Seminary, where I went as well, from Dallas, uh, preaches there at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And, and I went to his site to see, what does Tony Evans have to say about racial unification and reaching out to our community and those things. What's he, what's he saying? I want to hear a wise voice because there's so many voices. And, and this is awesome. I went there over this past week and I realized that one of the very things that our elders have already initiated is what he suggested. And here's what he suggested. He said, go into your public schools and mentor kids. He said, mentor them, help them to see there's a future in Christ. And a, a few months ago in our elder meeting, John Dowdy brought this up. He says, hey, I know a lady here in Decatur County. Her name's Alicia Brinson. She runs a mentoring program for kids, and you can actually go into the schools at lunchtime and, set, and, and, and meet with a kid and mentor him. And, and Johnny asked, well, what about the Bible and Scripture? She's like, ah, you can do that. And so our church is going to begin to promote this mentoring through the school system. What a great thing. Instead of sitting back and complaining and, and, and looking at the world and, oh, man, it's so broken, it's such messed up, do something. All right? Do something about it. Make a difference. Think of Justin. I mean, he's at the Friendship House making a difference. Sherry at the Friendship House and the, at the Stillwater Shelter. All of us have an opportunity to make a difference for the gospel. Are we going to do that? Another thing he said was, uh, Tony Evans said, was adopt a police precinct to influence the community and help with police relations. That's great. Such good stuff. And so the law is there for us to see the holiness of God. And then Paul says in verse 10, and whatever else, he's like, there's more, there's plenty more. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He doesn't point to the law. He points to, to his teaching, what he's been saying. Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul says, here's the gospel I've been entrusted. And it reflects the glory of God, the holiness of God. So the gospel of Jesus, in contrast to the false teachers, meaningless words and empty teachings, it revealed God's glory, his holiness, his hatred of sin, his justice, and his amazing grace and forgiveness. That's the gospel. That's what Paul was teaching and said, Timothy, Tell them to teach the gospel. Stick to the main thing. Don't get sidetracked on stuff that doesn't matter. And so, a love for God, a love for his word, so we see the holiness of God. A love for our neighbors. It has to impact everything that we do. It has to be about everything in our life. We can't compartmentalize this stuff out. We have to make it be a part of everything that we do. Who we marry. I, you know, I want to get married. All right? It is first and foremost in your mind finding someone who loves Jesus. Because the gospel speaks to that. What kind of work I'm going to do? It impacts that. Where I work, what I do, because I want Jesus Christ and the cross to be lifted up, whether I'm a banker or a farmer, whatever I do, I want Jesus to be lifted up in my work. How we treat the waiter at the restaurant, the gospel impacts that. 
Here's one that's personally for me, how I treat the referee at a basketball game, right? I mean, it gets personal there, right? And we can justify it. You're like, oh, it's just a game, yeah. And I find myself, you know, over the years telling myself that and then eventually realize, you know what, I'm, I'm just out of line. And then when you start trying to undo those things, it's really hard after you get into a habit and you need accountability, you need other support. How I vote, we know the elections are coming up. The cross influences how we vote in an election. We look at the holiness of God, we see the, the, the gift of Jesus Christ, and it affects how we vote. And we should vote, all right? It's so easy to come, become just like disenchanted with this thing. Man, I, I just don't even feel like voting. All right, it's just all just a, you know, it's just a mess anyway, and really can one vote make a difference, whatever. In the app, I put, if you haven't registered to vote, you need to register to vote because registration ends September 25th. And so please be a part of the solutions. Make a difference. Do what you can do, realizing that, yes, the biggest impact you can do is start local, but yet we have a voice and we should express that voice. How about the way that we spend our money? The gospel speaks to that. The holiness of God speaks to how we spend our money. And I could go on and on and on. If you have found yourself putting certain parts of your life away from God's touch, away from his holiness, away from his sovereignty, then there's a problem. Because God's character wants to flow out of us. We're ambassadors for him. When you look at an ambassador, what do you see? You're not supposed to see the ambassador. He's not the one that's saying the stuff. It's coming from his mother country, right? And the same thing with me as I preach the word. This is God's word, his truth. And the same for you. You're an ambassador for the gospel. You represent Christ. And so what you say and the attitudes that you have and the way that you treat people makes a difference because you're, you claim to be a Christian and your reflection upon the holy God. Do people look at you and say, well, they're not perfect, but man, I see God in them. I see Jesus shining. I see a holiness about their life. That should be what we want people to say, not because of us and our righteousness, but because of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 14, I'll finish this off. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. Strive for peace. We want love in our community. We don't need these vain arguments and these, these nonsensical conversations that happen. We want to strive for peace, but we strive for holiness. Truth and love. You can't have one without the other. And where do you find that? It's written on your heart. You go to God's word. You find delight in his word. You love his law. You say, God, I don't know. That's hard, but you said it. I'm obeying it. I'm reorienting my life to what you say. Because you're God and I'm not. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. It speaks truth into our lives, God. We know that we all must confess that we are sinners, as Paul said, worse than them all. Yet our hearts, while we may not do the action, our hearts sometimes are so deceitful and so prone to wonder to do things and, and, and dream and scheme of things which are so contrary to your holiness. And God, may we run to your, to your truth. May we live by the law of Christ to love our neighbors and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may we see your moral law in Scripture. 
and desire more and more, not just desire, but to, to pursue it, to strive after it, because it's there that people will see you. In Jesus' name, amen.